Uh, just before we open the Word, I don't do this very often, but I got a card this week. Our uh, children's director, Heather Sukup, her parents live in Memphis, and they helped arrange housing for our youth group that went down recently and did ministry down in uh, New Orleans. And on the way back, they stayed at a church there in Memphis, the Church of Heather's Folks. I got this card. I'm just going to read just a paragraph. Pastor Jay, having now had a couple of weeks to process the time we were privileged to spend here in Memphis with the youth group from Crystal Lake, on their way home from New Orleans, I wanted to encourage you by sharing a few thoughts about the group. I've never seen a group of young people who were more respectful, well-behaved, and delightful than these teenagers were. We were especially impressed with their gratitude as every single one of them thanked us repeatedly and enthusiastically for our hospitality. She goes on, she ends this way, we were honored to participate in the spread of the gospel with all of you through prayer and even in the small way of offering hospitality, Carolyn and Chuck Downs. So I thought that was to Pastor Ron and all those involved in uh, leadership, our ministry, our youth ministry is called Nexus. But all of those involved, lay level and staff level, and to those teens that went. Just a tremendous tribute to what God is doing. And thought that was, thought you would be very encouraged uh, hearing that. Yes, worth applause. I invite you to open to Luke chapter 1. I invite you to have your Bible ready. We're going to be uh, moving around in several passages. We're going to get to Luke 1 in just a couple of minutes. I'm starting a new series this morning called Angels and Demons. Over the years, uh, you're probably familiar, lots of books have come out on angels. Unfortunately, a lot of them are from a New Age perspective. I was on Amazon this week, just kind of cruising around, looking at bestsellers, whether by Diana Cooper or Elizabeth Clare Prophet, both New Age gurus. In fact, Elizabeth Clare Prophet also goes by the name Guru Ma, Mother of the Flame. Whatever that means. If you go online today, you can find dozens of books. Unfortunately, again, a lot of them come from a non-biblical perspective. The problem is finding biblically accurate material. It is out there. At the very end today, I'm going to mention three books, one on a popular level, intermediate level, more of an academic level that you might want to look at further. The four messages in the series, starting today, we're going to look at what does the Bible teach about angels. Then next week, we will look at our demons for real, what Scripture teach about demons, demonology. Week number three, we're going to look at a biography of Satan himself. Satan is the one being, B-E-I-N-G. He can't be everywhere at once. He is no different than any other being in the universe. We speak often of Satan did this, Satan did that. He can only be in one spot at one time. We're going to look at the prince of demons, Satan. And then on the final Sunday, I think maybe my favorite of the messages, uh, based off a of saying Luther did, we're going to look at God's sovereignty over Satan the devil is God's devil, and a reminder that the devil is under God's sovereignty. With that this morning, I want to break down our time into two parts. Uh, we're going to look at the existence of angels. I'm going to talk for a few minutes, and then we're going to jump into their job description. What is it? If you're an angel, what is it you do? <laughs> what are you called to do? And so that's how we're going to approach it this morning. Uh, first of all, existence of angels. For most of church history, when you look at the great writers and thinkers, theologians, they wrote a lot about angels. Classic example, Aquinas. Aquinas was a 13th century Roman Catholic theologian. He was a titan in the history of the church. And he wrote a lot. In fact, he earned a nickname 
before he died at a young age of 49, he wrote shelves and shelves of books. He earned the nickname the Angelic Doctor because of how much time and focus he spent on angels. Fast forward to today, it is not unusual today to pick up a systematic theology and find almost no treatment of angels, sometimes barely even mentioned. Now, Wayne Grudem, that we use around here a lot, fortunately does have a couple good chapters on Satan and demons and angels, but it's not unusual to find almost nothing written on it today, even in a Bible-believing, evangelical, conservative, systematic theology or a New Testament theology. Um, one of the reasons for this, I was taking a class several years ago, graduate school, and I had a professor, Dr. Paul Hebert. Paul Hebert, one of the best anthropologists of the day in the Christian world, and he was talking about this middle realm that we don't think about much in the West. And he wrote, he wrote an interesting article. The, the title of it is a little skewed. It's called The Flaw of the Excluded Middle. You're like, what? That sounds like a math formula or something. It's not. Paul Hebert served for decades in India as a missionary. And then it was interesting to hear him in a graduate-level seminar say this statement. Western missionaries have, won, have been one of the greatest forces for secularizing the mission field. And I thought, I haven't heard that before. So, and he went on to explain. He said, you know, we take over a two-tiered view of reality, our worldview. That was his big thing, worldview. He said, when I went to the mission field, he said, I took over a two-tiered, two-tiered view of reality, God and this realm. He said, I conceptually believed in the realm of spirits, but I didn't really think much about it. And he said, what I didn't realize, that's where the people that I ministered to lived all the time. <clears throat> this is the realm you might call of uh, those kind of traditional religions that believe in ancestor worship or demons or fairies or goblins or angels or whatever. This, this middle realm, he said, that's where the villagers lived that's where they dwelt. They were terrified of that realm. And he said, I went over and I didn't even think about that realm. The flaw of the excluded middle. And he, hence his phrase that Western missionaries have done some of the greatest work for secularizing the mission field. He said, I was not equipped, he said, to deal with, for example, d diseases uh, brought about by demons. Because I didn't think about them very much. I, I was very ill-equipped, he said, to deal with demonic possession. And he said, I, I did not help the workers that I worked with over there develop a biblical demonology and a biblical angelology. And so that is why we want to dive into this. The word angel itself in Hebrew and in Greek means the same thing. It means messenger. Sometimes it's applied to a human. Sometimes it's applied to a spiritual being. There's a couple of these creatures that are named in the Bible. Michael, who actually is called an archangel. Gabriel, a lot of people think Gabriel's an archangel. He may be, but he's never called one. Those are two of the angels that are named. And the bottom line is you look through the scriptures, angels are mentioned a lot. But Western eyes often read right over the passages. That's why this morning I asked Jason to read a passage that we often almost miss seeing that middle realm there. Angels warned lot. We're going to get to this in a minute of Sodom and Gomorrah's doom, Genesis 19. Jacob wrestled with an angel in Genesis 32. An angel led the Jews through the wilderness. 
In Exodus 14, angels are pictured worshiping God in Isaiah 6 and also in Revelation 5. We'll get to that shortly. Michael, the archangel, plays a very prominent role in the book of Daniel. Angel Gabriel announced to Mary she was pregnant in Luke 1. Angels announced to Mary that Jesus had risen from the dead. And the word angel, angelos, is mentioned over 60 times in the last book of the Bible. And angels are talked about a lot. Two other questions before we go to the job description. One, is there a hierarchy of angels? We're never told per se, but we do get categories like archangel mentioned. So it looks like there is some kind of, and that's in Jude in 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> There's also two other creatures mentioned you may know of in the Bible. Seraphim in Isaiah 6 seem to be an angelic being. Their name in Hebrew means the burning one, probably a reference to their light. And cherubim. Cherubim are mentioned in Genesis and also in Psalms. So there probably is some kind of a ranking in the angelic world. All right, with that, I want to dive into, because we're going to look at several passages here. What is it that angels do? They seem to be involved a lot. Now, having said that, let me add one thing. Millard Erickson, who's a Baptist theologian of old, he said, here's the problem when you study angelology. He said, there's really no direct passage that just teaches about angels. He said, every passage <clears throat> where you read about angels, they're incidental to something else going on. And so you can't just go to a passage and say, okay, this is the job description you know, of an angel. This is what angels do. They show up, but it's usually in a story about something else. So just as we keep that in mind, that's why we need to turn to several passages to see what they do. So with that, I'm going to dive in. These are in no particular order. We're going to look at five areas with some scriptural support. I think you'll find these interesting of where angels are involved and what they do. Young people, I think you're going to find this very interesting. Get your Bible ready or your phone or your tablet. We're going to flip around a bit. First of all, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33, angels reveal, R-E-V-E-A-L, and communicate messages from God to the human race at times. So this is a classic example. Luke 1, 26 to 33. This is Gabriel appearing and announcing the birth of Jesus. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Nazareth was a very, very small, know-nothing village. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned by Josephus. It's not mentioned by Josephus. It's not mentioned by anybody. It was, it was very tiny and out of the way. It was a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph and a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Angels are, in the Bible, always projected as male. We don't know that they're male, but male pronouns are used with them. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. And wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive, give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. Jesus. And he will be great. We will be called the Son of the Most High. So there is a very important message, an announcement of the coming Messiah. We've already read it in the book of Numbers. I'm not going to reread that. Of an angel communicating for the Lord to Balaam, who was being a jerk and an idiot, 
And then we're told God spoke through the donkey. Uh, there's lots of other examples of angels speaking for God to people. Angels spoke to Philip. An angel spoke to Paul. An angel spoke to Peter. An angel spoke to Cornelius. In Acts 7.38, we're told an angel spoke to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And in Acts 7.53, we're told that the law of Moses was delivered through angels. These are the kind of phrases that Western eyes just often glaze over and don't pick up. So first of all, angels reveal and they communicate for God at times something he has to say to the human race. Secondly, angels praise and worship God on an ongoing basis. And for this, I want to go to Revelation chapter 5. If you're familiar with your Bibles, which I know a number of us are, but you may not be, this may be new territory for you. There's a tremendous paragraph about the angels and their ongoing, and very similar wording, very similar passage to what we read in Isaiah 6 with the seraphim. I thought this one was a little more cogent because it mentions, uh, it doesn't tell us how many there are, but it says there's a lot. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the Apostle John. He was given this revelation on the island of Patmos, which is a small island off the coast of Turkey. He said, I looked and I heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands. But that is, an, and then he goes further, and 10,000 times 10,000. So in other words, a lot. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice... This is what they said. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. I was reading one New Testament scholar recently, an Australian scholar, and it was interesting. Based on verse 12, he said he found great comfort personally that in our world where so many people regularly blaspheme the name of God and Jesus that somewhere in the universe, there were tens of thousands of creatures regularly crying out praise to God, even in the midst of all the blasphemy on our planet. And he found great comfort in that personally. I thought that was an interesting comment. So we shouldn't be surprised that angels are around us, and we shouldn't even be surprised that angels would attend a worship service and be in our midst. I am sure they are here today. Uh, I've shared this story once before, but let me share it because it's the most personal that I've had. A number of years ago in our first church in Michigan, we, actually our second church, we, uh, we had a converted Muslim from Iran. She was from Tehran, Miriam. And she became a great blessing to Becky and I. She had gotten saved in Iran, then she was educated in London, and then she ended up in Michigan. Dear, dear saint of God, and Miriam, at times, had different visions, different spirituality than I was accustomed to, but she was rock solid, she was a godly lady, and why shouldn't I, you know, why shouldn't we listen to her? It was even interesting, our elders had a special affinity for just listening to her. She came from a little bit different perspective than, a, than Western believers. One day after a communion service, Miriam told Becky and I, she and she always pronounced my name, she always, Pastor Jay, Pastor Jay, Pastor Jay, I need to tell you something about the communion service last Sunday. I'm like, okay, go ahead. 
She said, while you were standing at the, at the table, there was a huge angel behind you. And I said, uh-huh. <laughs> she said, and she knew young Pastor Jay was skeptic. She said, uh, no, I'm serious. She said he was as real as you. I said, okay. Um, and, and knowing her and the, and the fruit of her life and her walk with Christ, no reason not to take her seriously. And she said, I couldn't even see his head. He was so tall. She said he had his wings out over you in the communion table. She, she called him a warrior of light. And she said he just stood there. And I said, you know, we thought later, why wouldn't angels be present when God's people come together? This is what they do around the throne room. Why wouldn't they want to be where the gospel is preached on this planet, especially when we know there is spiritual warfare going on around us between demons and angels. So they are there and they are very real and they continually praise and worship God. Thirdly, angels care for and help believers. We read this in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, which is probably a sermon. It has the components of a letter and a sermon, but it looks to be a first century sermon, what we call Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 14, angels are spirit messengers sent out to help and care for those who are to receive salvation. So angels care for and help believers. We don't know in what ways at times, but I'm sure in many more ways than we are aware of. If you'd go back to Exodus chapter 23, this is a classic example of God using an angel to lead his people. And again, it's one of these stories where you almost look past what the angel's doing because you're focused on what's going on in the text. But the wording is very explicit, both in Hebrew and English. Exodus 20, verses 23, I'm sorry, chapter 23, verses 20 and following. Exodus 23, verses 20 and following. This is God speaking. He says, see, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. That's interesting wording. Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen to carefully to what he says and do all I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will wipe them out, says the Lord. In Genesis 16, an angel comforted Hagar. In 1 Kings 19, an angel brought Elijah food. And it was an angel that closed the lion's mouth in Daniel. And in Acts 12, it was an angel that delivered Peter from prison. So as Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology, we should have every reason to assume angels are watching us. And interestingly, even watching our obedience and our disobedience. They're watching us, and there's no reason to not believe they're watching us all the time. There's no indication that our ancestors can see us based off Hebrews. That's not a biblical idea that grandpa and grandma are up there watching us. What a depressing thing to think for them that all they got better to do in heaven is to watch us down here fumbling around. 
But there's every reason to believe that angels and demons are very present and watch us. Not only is the Lord, in other words, watching our obedience and our disobedience, but when you next time choose to sin, be aware you are likely being observed by angels and demons. So very interesting. Fourthly, this one's a sobering one. Angels help execute judgment for God. Angels are shown a number of times in the Bible executing judgment for God. Classic example, if you go to Genesis 19, it was two angels, again, pictured as two men, who appeared to Lot in the city of Sodom. Sodom is or was on the banks of the Dead Sea. We've gone right by it a number of times and been in Israel. We pretty good idea of exactly where it is, where it was. There's nothing there anymore. Genesis 19 records when two angels came and they had a message. And it was not a message of God's favor. It was a message of flee. It was a message of mercy in judgment, their mercy. It was a message of judgment to Lot who lived in a very wicked city. I'm going to read starting in verse 1. Let's pay attention to how many times these angels show up in the story. Two angels arrived in Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. That is classic Middle Eastern hospitality. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate before they had gone to bed. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Sodom was a city given over to the perversion of homosexuality. So Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing, he said to the men. Now, if you go forward to verses 12 and 13, the two men, the two angels, said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great, he has sent us to destroy it. We read the end of the story starting in verse 24. Yahweh rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And thus he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. And then the famous interesting verse. But Lot's wife, she disobeyed, she looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. It's interesting, today there is a, a, there's a big pillar along the Dead Sea, along all the salt deposits that's called, uh, tour guides love to point it out, called Lot's wife. No idea if it is or not, but there it is. Interesting, in 2 Kings, terrifying verse, chapter 19, verse 35, one angel killed in one night 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. This is what we read. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 
185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. These were not wimps. These were hardened, battle-tested soldiers of the Assyrian Empire. These were, think ISIS. When you think of Assyria, think Taliban, think ISIS. These were brutal, brutal soldiers. They had, it was said of the Assyrian army, the fear wasn't being killed by them. The fear was what would happen to you before they killed you. And I will spare you the details. I can tell you if you ever get to the British Museum, they have the Lakish relief and they have a whole section dedicated to the Assyrian, all the stuff that Britain has pillaged from Iraq. And you can, but you can read some of the descriptions of what the Assyrian army did. They were brutal. And here, a soul, one angel obliterated 185,000 of these warriors. Lastly, in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, one other example of angels executing judgment, verses 1 to 6. We have a very descriptive passage, Revelation 16, 1 to 6, of angels delivering God's wrath in the final days. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 6. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowl of God's wrath on the earth. So seven bowls, God's wrath on the earth. First angel went, poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. Third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. We talk a lot around here about get God off the hook theology where you come to difficult passages like this and a lot of modern progressive Christians try to massage it all and saying well it doesn't really mean that God did this something else is going it's very clear the writer of Revelation John is, doesn't try to get God off the hook he says God is directly responsible and his angels for a tremendous act of judgment here in chapter 16. So angels help execute judgment from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Lastly, we are told angels will be involved in the second coming. And here in Matthew 25, I'm not going to turn to it, but Matthew 25, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read of angels accompanying, announcing, blowing trumpets for the second return of Christ to earth. They will come with him, they will announce it, and they will be a very real part of that. Angels will be involved in the second coming. All right. What's the summons of a sermon like this? All right. Let me give you two this morning. Numero uno. The Bible is very clear, and I'm saying this because of all the New Age junk that comes out about angels. The Bible is very clear that only Jesus can save us, not angels. That's a, now, you might say, well, no kidding. Well, that may be a no-brainer if you are a committed Bible-believing Christian. But in the culture at large today, when you go on Amazon or book, 
distributor and look at some of the stuff that's sold, you would think that angels are God. And the Bible is clear, they're not. They're not. They're creatures no different than you and I. They had a point of origin in time. They will be eternal forward. But only Jesus can save us, not angels. In Hebrews chapter 1, God makes it very clear that angels are to worship Jesus. And he is the only savior, that even angels are to be involved in worshiping him. Revelation 22, there's an angel that appears and John falls on his knees to worship this creature. And the creature says, don't, you idiot. I mean, (laughs) idiot's in the marginal reading there. But he says, get up. He tells him, get up. And then he says this, worship God. Don't worship me. But that shows you how they can be perceived. As angels of light, as we're told, even Satan can come across as an angel. We have no idea how big these are, how big they can appear, what kind of form they can take. But clearly, John was so captivated, he fell down thinking this was Christ or somebody from God. And the angel said, don't worship me, worship God. So a reminder biblically, just so we're all crystal clear, only Jesus saves. Not Krishna, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not angels. Only Jesus saves. Joshua 24, 15. Bible's very clear. You have to make a choice in life. And that choice will determine where you go for all of eternity. This is the words we read. Joshua 24, 15. I don't know if you know who Joshua was. He was successor to Moses. By chapter 24, he's an old man. He gets his leaders together and he's giving them one final charge. And he says in verse 15. To the people and the leaders, choose yourselves this day whom you will serve. And then in a moment of autobiography, I love it. He says, as for me and my household, what's he say? We will serve the Lord. The Bible teaches, friends, that salvation involves a decision. And that decision is for heaven or hell. Jesus said, if you want to follow him, if you want eternal life, you must die to self. Meaning to selfish interest, selfishness. And take up your cross, which was an instrument of death, and follow him to a place of death. That's why even his disciples wavered. That's why some of they were looking for a Messiah coming to help overthrow Rome. They wanted a kingdom. They wanted a crown. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Before the crown comes the cross. And too often we want the crown before the cross. Jesus says, no, you got to have the cross first, then the crown. Big difference. 147 years ago this weekend in London, England, a young man by the age of about 39, Charles Spurgeon, largest church on the planet at the moment, got up, as far as I can tell, he preached it August 23rd, so that would be roughly today, 147 years ago. I was reading it this morning, and he had, he had an incredible paragraph, and I, just, I had to stick it in here. So, so he closed. The sermon was preached about the prodigal son, It was called The Turning Point. And he said this. Some of you whom I am speaking to this morning, and he he would roughly have a congregation of about 6,000 each Sunday without amplification and microphones and all the rest. Some of you I'm addressing here have been thinking and thinking and thinking till I fear you're going to think yourselves into hell. May you by divine grace be turned from thinking to believing 
or else your thoughts will become the undying worm of your eternal torment. Sinner, you must come to God. Jesus is the only way. That's Chuck, Charles Spurgeon, who could preach it. So that's the first takeaway. Only Jesus saves. No other Savior anywhere, no angels, no other being, only Jesus. Second and final point of summons this morning. We should be aware that angels are around us on a daily basis. Or at least they're around what we do and what we see and they observe us. Again, Hebrews 1.14 tells us we should be aware of angels in our daily lives. Not worshiping them, not becoming obsessed with them, but... That's not the danger of most Western Christians. <laughs> danger of us is we don't even think about them. Hebrews 1.14, angels are spirit messengers sent out to help and care for those to receive salvation. And then interesting, some of you know this verse, pretty cool verse. It's the only verse I get in the Bible. Hebrews 13.2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels. I can think of some people who've been in my home that I definitely know did not fall in that category <laughs> that we've entertained over the years and decades. But it is interesting, if the Bible's true, and I believe it is, to think about have you ever had, with a crowd this size, there's had to be some of us here who've had angels drop by unannounced, and to think back over the years, could you have entertained an angel? That's the kind of thing Western people don't even really think about. But we should. I told you I would end by giving you three books, recommendations for follow-up. These are in our church library. Pastor Tim does a great job keeping that thing stocked and up to date. Let me just give you three. There's lots of them, but these are three safe, <laughs> safe ones. There's the classic by Billy Graham. I mean, you can go all the way back to Aquinas. I'm not going to recommend it because it's written in classic scholastic format, and it's long. And if you're not used to reading scholastic uh, theology, it, you yeah, so... Billy Graham's classic, Angels, is still a classic. I bumped into that as a teenager, read it, gobbled it up. I know if you're here and you're under 30, you're like, Billy who? <laughs> Billy Graham. Google him, please. Secondly, that, I'm going to put that one on the popular level. Intermediate level, there's one written, an older one by Fred Dickinson, who used to teach at Moody Bible Institute. Angels, evil, and elect. Do you know that God not only predestines human beings, there is the elect and the non-elect. That's true even with angels. The phrase is used, elect angels. In Fred Dickinson's book, Angels, Evil, and Elect. Still a classic Moody Press. I'd put that more in the intermediate level. And then a new one, Pastor Tim actually recommended to me, and I read it on vacation recently, by Graham Cole. C-O-L-E, Australian New Testament scholar. In fact, he's retiring right now as dean at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And the book is called Against the Darkness. A little more of an academic pitch, still very readable if you're versed in the Bible, and a very good treatment of angelology, demonology, and even the person of Satan. About 250 pages. Very, very interesting book. So there's three that are safe, reliable guides if you're looking for something further. If you want to know more than that, come talk to one of the pastors. We'd be happy to recommend further. I'm going to close this part in prayer, and then we will finish up this morning. Father, thank you for 
your, your word. We know as every culture, we have blind spots. And we, one of ours in the West is angelology and demonology. And so we pray that you would guide us and help us in the next month to have a better appreciation for these unseen creatures, beings, helpers, and even those who have crossed over in, on the dark side and what demons do and Satan himself. So would you help us to have a better awareness to live more strategically? And I pray for those here today, Father, who have not yet made that choice for Christ, that they would not perish and go to hell, but would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his glorious name. Amen.